Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Now, let's be honest. How many of you had no clue as to what that video was about that we just saw a moment ago? Okay, a few of you. Uh, That's okay. Hopefully, it's going to make sense in a few minutes. Um, This morning, we are starting a new preaching series inspired in part by the clips that you saw a moment ago from the 1987 fairy tale adventure movie, Princess Bride. And if you have not seen Princess Bride, you are missing out because this movie involves a wonderful mix of action, comedy, romance, suspense, character development. I think there's also a sword fight in there, maybe more than one sword fight. All the elements that make for a good movie. Uh, Princess Bride, now I'm biased here because Princess Bride is a movie that my generation personally grew up on. And the movie is presented as a story um, read by a grandfather to his grandchild who is sick. Uh, We have a picture of this. This is like the opening scene up here in the movie, uh, or in the movie. And the story begins, this grandfather is reading a story to his grandchild, and the story begins with this young woman named Buttercup. Um, Buttercup lives on a farm in the fictional town of Florin, and every day as Buttercup works on the farm, she receives assistance from a hired farmhand named Wesley. Uh, Buttercup is kind of bossy. She likes to order Wesley around, telling him what to do, and she's rarely polite as she does it. Nevertheless, Wesley responds to all of Buttercup's demands with the same three words. Do you know what they are? As you wish. You've seen this movie before, I'm guessing. As you wish. And eventually, it dawns on Buttercup that when Wesley says, as you wish, He's actually saying another set of words. What are those? I love you. As it turns out, Wesley is deeply in love with Buttercup, and Buttercup falls in love with Wesley in return. But before the two of them can officially be together, like in any compelling narrative, unexpected twists arise. For example, at one point, Buttercup is seized by a group of bandits, and the leading bandit is this sly man by the name of Vizzini. Vizzini. Uh, We have a picture of Vizzini up here. Vizzini is a criminal mastermind. He is the ultimate villain, the ultimate bad guy. But despite his intelligence, Vizzini does not have the best grasp of the English language because there is a word that he continues to misuse every time one of his evil plans are thwarted or frustrated, or he's caught off guard. Now, what is the word that he misuses? Inconceivable. you got to say that with more enthusiasm. Let's try that again. Inconceivable. And so with this context now in mind, let's once again watch this montage of movie clips. Check it out. Truly, you have a dizzying intellect. That would be inconceivable. As I told you, it would be absolutely, totally, and in all other ways, inconceivable. 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 Inconceivable! You keep using that word. 
I don't think it means what you think it means. Hopefully now that bumper video makes a whole lot more sense. In the movie, Vizzini ironically uses the word inconceivable to describe situations that unfold flawlessly, seamlessly. And so finally his co-bandit rightly points out to him, hey, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever misused a word before? I certainly have. I'm guilty of this. Here's another question. Have you ever misused a Bible verse? Yeah, nobody wants to raise their hand right now, but perhaps a few of us have. Well, this morning we are starting this new sermon series, as I said. Uh, this series is inspired by that movie, Princess Bride, and we have entitled this series, You Keep Using That Bible Verse, I Do Not Think It Means What You Think It Means. The premise of this series, the conviction of this series, is that Vizzini's misuse of inconceivable mirrors how a lot of us tend to quote Scripture. And here's what I mean by that. We toss out these Bible verses in conversation with friends and family with the best of intentions. Don't get me wrong. Our intentions are normally in the right place. And we assume we know what those verses are talking about, what those verses are describing. But then when we go back to the original context, in other words, the book, the chapter, the passage in which those verses are located, and we dig beneath the surface and we look a little more carefully, we discover that all we've unintentionally done is misapply and misappropriate Scripture. And this actually happens more often than we realize. Uh, I have a pastor friend who one time received a calendar as a gift uh, by one of the people in her church. And the calendar, of course, had 12 months, as calendars always do. And each month had a different Bible verse, a Bible verse that was meant to inspire the person, offer encouragement and hope. Well, one of these verses was from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 9, which says this, All this I will give to you, it's not up here on the screen, I'm just going to verbally say it, All this I will give to you if you would bow down and worship me. Now, on the surface, without any context, one might assume that that verse is about the worship of God. It's not. That verse is actually about the worship of God's adversary, Satan, the enemy. Remember, those are the words that Satan speaks to Jesus as he's tempting Jesus in the desert. He tempts Jesus three times, and one of those temptations, he says, all this I will give you. He shows Jesus the kingdoms of the world. All this I will give you if you would bow down and worship me. Probably not the most appropriate verse to put on a calendar. But that's what happens when we isolate an individual verse from the overall context. And so in these messages, what we're going to be doing as a church family is we're going to be analyzing and delving into five, five of the most commonly misquoted Bible verses. We're going to discover how we tear these verses from their overall context and talk about them in a way that the writers of Scripture probably never intended. And then as we insert these verses back into their proper context, we're also going to discover how these verses might still convey God's truth to our lives even out today, because God wants to continue to speak to us through the words of Scripture. And the verse that we're going to start with, our inaugural verse for this sermon series, you've probably heard it before, it's from Jeremiah chapter 29, 
verse 11. This verse is up here on the screen. Let's read this together on the count of three. One, two, three. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. This is the word of God for the people of God to which we say, thanks be to God. It's easy to understand why this verse is so popular. It promises a great plan for our lives, doesn't it? A plan full of prosperity. plan full of hope. And who wouldn't want that? And because, yeah, all of us would. And because this verse is so popular, it is also one that is heavily marketed. In fact, of all the verses in Scripture, this one might be the most marketed one of all. Now, the most common place for us to find this verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, is on the front of a graduation card, uh, reminding the graduate who just finished school, God has a great plan for you. You might not have a job. You might have a whole lot of student debt. You might not have a clue as to what your next step is, but you know what? Rest assured, God has a great plan for you. But it's not just graduation cards. This verse also shows up, and we have examples of this, shows up on birthday cards, shows up at weddings. Uh, you can see this picture. The bride is coming down the aisle. You can't see the bride, but she's coming down the aisle. She's ready to meet her groom, and the words of Jeremiah 29 and 11 are right there on the ground, on the aisle. And then you have uh, people have also used this verse for home decor, as you can see above the fireplace mantle. And then, yes, people have also used these words for bathroom decor. You see this toothbrush holder and soap dispenser. I showed this picture to one of my colleagues, and he said, well, you know, God's plan for you is to have clean hands and no cavities. <laughs> People have even gotten Jeremiah 29, 11 tattooed on their body. And so as all these examples show us, a lot of us in our culture love. We want to claim the promise of this verse but here's the question. Is that what this verse was intended for when it was written thousands of years ago? Was it intended for people finishing school or celebrating a birthday or celebrating a wedding or looking for a creative way to decorate their fireplace mantle or their bathroom or get a tattoo in their body? The danger with all this is that by missing the context, we can flippantly apply this verse to our lives and our situation. Because, folks, the truth is, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, was not written to us. It was not written to people living in 21st century America. Instead, this verse was actually composed during one of the darkest periods of ancient Jewish history. And that would be the Babylonian exile. More than six, or actually not more, but just under 600 years before Jesus. So Jesus was among us 2,000 years ago. We're talking 600 years before that, or just under 600 years before that, uh, just under 2,600 years ago. God's people, the Israelites, were living in the nation of Judah. Uh, at one point, there had been a united kingdom, but then the kingdom of Israel split away from the kingdom of Judah, and then eventually the kingdom of Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians. Well, Almost 600 years before Jesus, God's people uh, were living in the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom. And the problem was that by and large, they weren't properly living in relationship with God. 
They weren't following God. They weren't listening to God. They were worshiping after false idols. They weren't caring for the poor. They weren't pursuing matters of justice. They weren't doing the things that God wanted them to do. God knew that his people needed humbling. And so in a way that broke God's heart and caused God a great deal of pain, God allowed the people of Judah to be conquered by the much larger nation of Babylon. Uh, this happened um, you know, a lot of years ago, as we said, and the conquering took place under the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, who maybe you've heard of from the history books. Uh, this conquering happened over a period of time. And then once the conquering was finished, once Judah was destroyed, once Jerusalem, the capital city, the city in which many people believed God's presence dwelt, once the temple was destroyed that Solomon, David's son, had built, once all that was gone, the Babylonians took the strongest and most able-bodied people and brought them from Jerusalem into exile, away from their homeland. Well, as all this was going on, God called Jeremiah to be a prophet. Jeremiah was not just a bullfrog. He was also a prophet. <laughs> just making sure you're still with me. Now, what's a prophet? Well, a prophet is basically a spokesperson for God, messenger for God, somebody who speaks a message to God's people on God's behalf. And Jeremiah has often been called the weeping prophet. Not the most encouraging title. The weeping prophet. Because his message is, brought a great deal of personal sadness. He's the guy who authored the Old Testament book of Lamentations. He writes that book as he's lamenting over the fall and the destruction of Jerusalem, this once great city. Jeremiah had warned the people of Judah about the impending conquest by the Babylonians. And then once the conquest was finished and the people were taken into exile, he also had to share the difficult news that things were not going to immediately get better. They were going to stay bad for a while. Imagine if you're a person hearing all this, that things aren't going to get better. They're just going to continue to stay bad. Well, as all this was going on in the background, there was this other false prophet who came about. His name was Hananiah. Can you say this name with me? Hananiah. Hananiah was a contemporary of Jeremiah. And he shows up in Jeremiah chapter 28, one chapter before chapter 29, in which we find this well-known verse. And in a nutshell, this is what Hananiah says to the people of God in exile in Jeremiah 28. And I would invite you to read this passage uh, later on this week. He says, listen, I know things are bad. I know you're discouraged. I know you're upset. But here's the good news. God has personally spoken to me. I've received this, this revelation from God. And God has told me that all of you will get to go home in about two years. Now, let me ask you this question. If you were somebody living back then, your city had been destroyed, your nation had been destroyed, you're off in exile, wanting to go back home, who would you rather listen to? Would you rather listen to Hananiah, who says that you're going to go home in two years? Or would you rather listen to Jeremiah, who says that it's going to be far longer than that? Hananiah. No questions asked. Hananiah was a thorn in the side of Jeremiah, constantly undermining, contradicting what the prophet said, and not only that, but also humiliating and degrading Jeremiah every opportunity he got. Listen to what it says here in Jeremiah 28, verses 10 and 11. 
It says, Then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah and broke it. Now, I've mentioned before in previous sermons that what we have to understand about Jewish culture, it's very visual. Maybe some of you have been to a Jewish wedding where the bride and the groom, they stomp on a piece of glass. Why do they do that? Well, to demonstrate that marriage should be entered into with trepidation. Amen? Because marriage is a serious thing. Marriages can break. Marriages can be shattered, uh, just like glass can be shattered. Or, or think about Jesus on the last night of his life. He was in the upper room, and he took a loaf of bread, and he broke it, and he took a cup of wine, and he poured it. Why? To demonstrate to his disciples that in that same way, his body was going to be broken, and his blood was going to be spilled on the cross. This is a very visual culture. So Hananiah takes the yoke off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, he breaks it, and he said before all the people, this is what the Lord says. In the same way, I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, off the neck of all the nations within how long? Two years. At this, the prophet Jeremiah went on his way. Went on his way because he was frustrated. Went on his way because he was enraged. And in that moment, didn't know what else to do. Hanani was knowingly lying to the people of God. And he was passing off his message as genuine, authentic prophecy. I'm a fan of history. And so, one TV show that I like to watch on the History Channel every once in a while is the show called Pawn Stars. Anybody ever seen it before? It takes place in Las Vegas. There's this Las Vegas pawn store, and uh, these people own the pawn store, and customers come in, and all this is televised, and they, they try to sell their items for cash. Well, in this one particular episode, there was this person who brought in a violin that he had found in a barn that he had purchased. He had bought this barn, went inside of it, and then found this violin. And the violin had the word Stradivarius inscribed on it. Yeah, some of you know what a Stradivarius is, don't you? Stradivarius is not just any typical violin. It's worth a lot of money. We're not talking hundreds of dollars. We're not talking thousands of dollars or tens of thousands. We're talking hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. I think I read somewhere that at one point a Stradivarius was sold for $16 million at an auction. This guy was hoping for a lot of money. But when you're dealing with something like that, got to make sure it's the real deal, don't you? You're putting down some serious cash, a serious investment. So the gentleman at the pawn store called in a friend of his um, who was a, an expert to authenticate the item. So the expert comes in, looks at the Stradivarius or looks at the violin, and he says, listen, I'm sorry to say this, this is not really a Stradivarius. What you have here is a cheap imitation that was produced in the early part of the 1900s, and it's worth about $500. But you know what? I would still take $500, wouldn't you? You might still be disappointed if you were hoping for hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, but you know, $500 in the grand scheme of things isn't so bad. But what stood out to me the most about that segment or that, that scene is when the expert said these words, just because something has the label doesn't mean it's real. That's true. Just because something has the label doesn't mean it's real. When we finish the service, I'm going to go to my car, my 2011 Toyota Corolla. Well, if I put the label Ferrari 
on my Corolla, if I put the Ferrari logo on my Corolla, it doesn't change the makeup of my car. At the end of the day, I'm still driving home a Corolla. I'm not driving home a Ferrari. In the book of Jeremiah, Hananiah's message had the label prophecy from God, declaration from the God of Israel, but it wasn't real. The people wanted it to be real because that's what they wanted to hear. They wanted to go home so desperately. And it wasn't until Hananiah's death at the end of chapter 28 that Jeremiah was finally in a position where he could get the people to pay attention to what he was trying to say. And so the beginning part of chapter 29, that's Jeremiah 28. In the beginning part of chapter 29, Jeremiah pins a letter from the fallen city of Jerusalem to all these people in exile. And this is how that letter reads. This is Jeremiah 29. We're going to start in verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Talking here about Hananiah. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have, because Hananiah and others like him, they're just saying words that the people want to hear. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Under the direction of God, under the inspiration of God, Jeremiah says to these people in exile, you're not going to go home in two years. I'm sorry, you were lied to. You're going to be here 35 times longer than you were told. You're going to be here for 70 years. Here's what I want you to do in the meantime. I want you to create gardens, grow produce, build houses, get married, raise children. When your children get older, have them get married. And in the meantime, trust the promise that God is with you. God has not left you. God has not forsaken you. It might seem that way right now, but that's not the case. God still has a plan and a purpose for you as a nation, as a collective people. Folks, in a nutshell, that's what Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11 is about. This verse is part of a larger letter, a larger text that the prophet wrote to a people that were discouraged believing that because their nation had been destroyed, believing that because their city had been taken away, that their homes were gone, that God had forsaken them. Now, some of us might be thinking, okay, Chris, that's a really nice history lesson, but come on, is that all there is to it? 
I mean, can't we as Christians in the year 2024 still claim the words and the promise of this verse? And my response would be yes. Absolutely, definitely, we can still claim the words and the promise of this verse. But folks, we can't do this flippantly. We can't do this carelessly. We have to do it responsibly, recognizing the broader context that we just talked about. Otherwise, we will miss out on this verse's intended meaning. This verse does not promise an easy and stress-free life. It doesn't promise a carefree existence. It has nothing to do with having a great career. It has nothing to do with individual wealth or individual prosperity. Despite how some people have read it and some people have preached it, that's not the case. Rather, this verse teaches that God's plans for us find their greatest fulfillment in our obedience to God. The people of Judah had failed to exercise proper obedience to God. And they had suffered because of all that. And yet God, in His grace, was giving them another chance. God was inviting the people to align themselves with the hope-filled future that He was writing for them. Notice how this verse reads. It says, for I know the plans I have for you. It doesn't say, you know the plans you have for you. I know the plans. God sets those plans. And in a general sense for us as Christians, God's plans for us are laid out in the teachings of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In places like the Sermon on the Mount and other parts of the Gospels, they include things like dying to ourselves, laying aside our ambitions, our aspirations, living for God and God's kingdom. But then, in a specific, more personal sense, those plans involve being in tune with the Holy Spirit, day in and day out, following the Spirit's lead so that we might do the things that the Spirit wants us to do. I was 16 years old when I had a pretty good sense that God wanted me to be a pastor. I was a rising junior in high school. But I've always had a lot of respect for those who answer their call to ministry later in life. In fact, I remember when I was in my first year of divinity school, seminary, I met this uh, gentleman in my class. He actually didn't know until he was in his mid-40s that he was called to be a pastor. Now, at that point, he was well-established in his career. He made pretty good money, drove a nice car, lived in a big house. His future was set. But all the while, as he continued to advance in his career, he felt what he called this growing sense of holy discontent. And so one day he went to his boss, quit his job. He applied to be a student at the seminary, sold his house, traded in his car. And when one of our classmates asked him why he did all that, I will never forget his response. That's what he said. Because God told me to. God told me to. Folks, will we respond with such obedience to the call of God in our lives, whether that call is to be a pastor like that man, to be a more active church person, or some other call that the Lord gives us? God's plans aren't always the plans that we would have had for ourselves, but they are always, they're always the right plans to follow. Jeremiah 29.11 was not written to us. 
It was written to discourage Jews in exile. But it was written for us. It was written to remind us of the importance of following God, surrendering our lives to His plans, submitting ourselves to His will, even when it differs from our own. So may all of us, led by the Holy Spirit, heed this timeless message. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for the prophet Jeremiah who spoke hard truths and had the courage to do so. God, may all of us practice obedience to you in our everyday lives. May we surrender ourselves to your will, to your purposes, to your plans for us, whatever those plans may be. May we be fully dedicated to you and the work of your kingdom on this earth. We ask all these things in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.